All right, you can be seated. All right, so if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. So I'm, I'm just, I'm excited to be here with all of you this morning. This is, uh, this is such an incredible privilege to begin, uh, to be able to just open the word with all of you and to, uh, uh, to jump into this Psalm. So Let's do this. Uh, let's start off by uh, just reading through Psalm 1, uh, 110. So I am uh, reading from the ESV, and uh, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, um, when you think of all the Psalms, you know, we, we tend to quote Things that resonate with us, right? We we will speak uh, we will speak these things back to other people. We will say them. We will repeat them. Uh, we will quote them. In fact, if most of us, uh, you know, if, we, if I ask the question, you know, uh, quote me something from the Book of Psalms, you know, what are we going to probably quote? There we go. Yeah, yeah. Psalm 23 is the first thing that comes to my mind. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. That's something that, that, really, resonates, uh, that really resonates with us. Uh, would it surprise you to know that this, is the, this Psalm 110 is the number one most quoted chapter of the Hebrew Bible by New Testament authors? This is the number one most quoted chapter of the Bible <laughs> by the New Testament. Okay, I mean that's and that's that's very that's uh, that says something because you know in some ways you know I just want that to sink in for a second because this is the psalm that really resonated with the New Testament authors and you know you you, you might be thinking um, you know why would anyone quote this you know <laughs> so because it's like you know you 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 begin the uh, begin the psalm the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, you know, or the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, you know, and it's like, whoa, 
Right, that's right. That's the, that's the thing I would quote, right, if, if I were quoting from, uh, from the Old Testament. So um, here's the deal. I want to, uh, my, my hope today is that we can begin to walk through Psalm 110 and kind of unpack this in a way that, that everybody here would be able to kind of walk away from this going like, I resonate with Psalm 110. I resonate with this and I want to see this happen. Right, because uh, this is um, this is Psalm one ten is one of the most helpful passages uh, in the Bible, really to help us put the entire story of the Bible together and to understand who it is. And so, uh, let's just uh, dive right in. So, uh, the very first part of Psalm one ten it says a Psalm of David. Okay, now a lot of uh, for a lot of our uh, Bibles, the way that it looks, it looks like it's in superscription and it's almost not part of verse one, right? Because it seems like it, it's uh, it's not quite part of the flow of the of the verse. However, this is part of this chapter. Okay, this is part of. Uh, it's, it's part of the text. Of the various Hebrew manuscripts we have, not one leaves it out. Like it is, it is integral to the text. And in some cases, uh, it doesn't really matter who wrote the psalm, right? There's a lot of them that, you know, we know who wrote some of them. There's others we don't know who wrote them. This is one of those where it really matters who wrote it because the meaning kind of hangs on who wrote the psalm. And we are going to assume here that it is David because it says it is written by David. And uh, Jesus also later quotes it and says, as David said. So we can't get any other, we can't get any more bulletproof than that. So a Psalm of David, um, he says, sit at my right hand until I make, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what we have in verse one, the Lord, which is in Hebrew, Yahweh, it is the proper name of God, the proper, uh, uh, the proper name says to my Lord, Adonai, which is master or uh, my master or my lord. Now, um, something just to just to kind of keep in mind here is the question is, you know, who is David referring to? Because David's speaking and he says, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord Adonai, and then he goes into this uh, statement of all of these various things. So the question is, who is David referring to if 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 this if this is David referring to someone as Lord who could it be right who could it be that David is referring to as his lord or his master right cuz that that really that that's a big deal to kind of ascribe that uh, that sort of God characteristic, that name of God to to somebody. So uh, and so the question ends up coming out just in the very beginning is, um, you know, who is this? Who is greater than David? Who is the one that is greater than David? And 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 you know what we end up seeing, and I'm just going to kind of I'm just going to tell you who it is right now, and then we're going to kind of unpack it, right? This is talking about the Messiah, okay? I don't know if this is, uh, this is shocking or surprising, but this is one of the key messianic psalms, one of the key psalms that are talking about the person of Jesus, okay? And so this is part of the reason why all the New Testament authors are quoting from this song because this is one of the, uh, this is one of the most clear um, 
this is one of the most clear messianic psalms that are uh, that are that are out there. You know, of all the songs, this is the number one messianic hit. You know, so uh, so part of it is we start asking the question of um, of where David is is beginning to write this because uh, before we kind of get into this, I want to help us sort of get into David's head a little bit, okay? Because David is going to begin talking about the Messiah. This is a messianic psalm, and so uh, so. The question is, when David wrote this, how was he inspired to write it? Okay, because in certain cases, when God inspired authors, you know, they, uh, you know, different things were like Daniel and John, where he told them specific things to write, and they were like, uh, I don't fully know what this is talking about, but he says, write it anyway, and then later it's going to make sense, right? There's some ways that God's that God. inspires that way, but that's typically not the case of what of how God inspires. He works through uh, people, and the Holy Spirit uses their life scenario, their life situations, and then He, uh, in His uh, in His power through His Spirit, speaks this inerrant word. And check this out. Um, what I would like to say is how was how was David come to write these words? Well, there's two main uh, sources that I believe David um, David drew from. Okay, he's not just pulling this thing on the Messiah out of nowhere. Um, so number one, uh, one of the main sources is I believe his study of Scripture. Okay. Um, in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, this is such a cool verse. Check this out. Um, this was something, um, and I'll, I'll go, ahead and, go ahead and put that up there. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 18. Listen to this. This is in the Torah. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. See, what happened when a king came to the throne, they were to, uh, they were to make a copy of the law, and then the old copy you know, basically got switched out, and the old copy um, became their personal reading copy because if you think about it you know Bibles it was it, it, uh, you know scripture it was hard to come by right this was actually hand copied and so the king would have his personal copy and God wanted the king to get into the word now the question is what was David's Bible think about that Right? What was David's Bible? Okay, because we're, we're going to say, like, what's our Bible? And we're going to be, uh, you know, we've, we've got 66 books that are our Bible. When we start saying, what are the New Testament authors' Bible? You know, that's, that, you know, kind of shrinks it down a little bit, right? Because it's not the New Testament, it's the Hebrew Bible. The question is, what is David's Bible? What is David soaking in? And David is soaking in primarily the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which, uh, uh, coincidentally, that is what we are going through with with uh, uh, with the uh, the youth on Sunday mornings uh, is reading reading Moses seeing Jesus. That's the whole thing of what we're going going through because we are looking at the story that God is telling through the first five books of the Bible and how this you know a, a lot of times when people uh, look at the Torah um, they think it's what it, they, they they just look at the the uh, first five books of the Bible and they think oh man this is just a collection of laws right it, there's a, a whole bunch of laws in there this is just a uh, this is just a collection of laws but in reality. Um, in reality, it's not just a, a book of random laws and stories. 
Uh, it, it actually has a point. And there is a structure to these first five books that are actually pointing to something greater than itself, something bigger. And so, uh, you know, what we start finding in the beginning of the Torah is that God makes everything good. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. He creates Adam as the first priest and king of the garden. In fact, that language is all through. It says that he gives Adam dominion and, and rule over the garden. Um, and you know when you look at this, you look at the uh, the way that the the Torah talks about um, the Garden of Eden. It's the same language that he talks about the tabernacle and the temple. And the the obvious comparison is that Adam is actually this first priest king that God sets up in this glory and beauty, and it is and it is just wonderful, except for one thing, in that that priest king, that original priest king, fails epically and in. Instead of being a king and subduing creation, instead of subduing the animals, what you find is that Adam ends up getting subdued by one of the animals, which was the snake, right? He ends up sinning, and then this this whole kingdom falls. It crumbles. The priesthood falls. It crumbles. And God, and the question is, well, what's God going to do about it? Because uh, it's wrecked. Everything is wrecked. And the answer is not just to give them more laws, right? Because what we end up finding is, is the Torah is actually a futuristic book, okay? Now, I know, some, I know it's kind of weird to think about the Torah as a future book, right? Because it sounds like the Torah is like these old stories of what happened in the past, but it's not. It's actually a future book because several times throughout the course of the Torah, it uses the statement, in the last days, in the last days, this will happen. In the last days, this will happen. In the last days, there is coming a deliverer. There is coming God's anointed one. There is coming this new covenant. Like, we talk about new covenant like it's a New Testament thing, except that it's not. It's actually something from Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30. Okay? Like, all this stuff that we hear about in, uh, in the New Testament, guess what? These guys were already quoting it and getting excited about it before it happened okay so you know if you look in uh, if you look in the uh, in the Torah there's approximately 5845 verses okay that's a lot of verses and only there's only nine key messianic verses okay so you might be saying like you know I mean if if we're just going by like the sheer number of verses I mean you know it's not the the book's not all about Jesus it's not all about him. However, you know, in John 5, 46, Jesus actually comes on the scene and says, listen, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because Moses, a.k.a. the Torah, spoke about me. Okay, so Jesus is interpreting the Torah to be all about him. And how, how is that? Well, here's the deal. It's kind of like... Um, how many of you have uh, uh, read like the uh, Chronicles of Narnia? Um, okay, so the key, uh, the key figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, like you know, you could say like, oh, you know, Prince Caspian gets a lot of airtime, right? You know, uh, uh, Queen Lucy, um, you know, Peter, you know, there's all kinds of people who get quite a bit of airtime. However, who's the story really about? It's about Aslan, that great lion. Okay, and and that is. And what happens is Aslan, if you, you know, even in uh, the book, uh, A Horse and His Boy, you see 
Aslan is almost not mentioned at all until the very end, and then he comes in right at the end, and he makes sense of the whole storyline that started in the very beginning. Okay, so this is exactly what's going on uh, here, and what happens is the way that the uh, the author, which is Moses, wrote the Torah, he interweaves uh, stories and genealogies, and more stories and genealogies, and then usually he wraps it up with a poem. Okay, and the poem is kind of like what happens in modern day musicals. Okay, so if you've ever you know watched uh, like The Lion King, right? You watch that you know beautiful Disney cartoon, The Lion King. You just got like Simba and Nala, you know, just kind of like walking around, gazing into one another's eyes, and then all of a sudden it's, can you feel the love tonight? You know, like, it's like, yeah, that is, that is yeah, they, they bust out, this is what happens, is they bust out into song, right? Well, that's what poetry is, and you'll see in your Bibles that uh, in these certain key sections, it, it jumps into song or jumps into poetry because it's trying to focus your attention. And guess where the Messiah shows up in almost every single part? Where does it show up? It shows up in the songs. It shows up in these edges of the text. And this is where we start seeing the Messiah come out. And we start seeing that this whole book from front to back is all about Jesus. Okay? So when David is writing this, he's got this in his head. He's got this deliverer that's coming, that's, that, that this... Uh, uh, in Genesis 3.15, the first little poetry section that happens was when, after they sin, and then God says that, um, and this is, this is what I love, you know, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I, I wasn't planning on reading this, but I'll just put, uh, or maybe I was. <laughs> I guess we got it up there. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, he's speaking to the snake. So he's talking about this, this one, and think about it this way. It's this warrior that's going to do some crushing. It's going to do some head crushing, right? The, this warrior that starts that that gets prophesied. Genesis three fifteen shows up in Genesis forty nine. Shows up in Numbers twenty four. Like all of these like key sections. Okay, so when when David is doing his devotions, he's reading this. Okay, he's reading this. He's getting excited about what God's doing because David knows that the Torah isn't just about doing good things. It's a future book about what God is going to do in the future, this new covenant that he's going to make, and this new, uh, this new uh, deliverer that's coming. Okay, Then, you know, cra- crazy, this is, this is uh, number two. Uh, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to read this. Um, So, 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is uh, God shows up to Daniel, Daniel, uh, to David, okay? God shows up to David, and David is like, hey, I want to build, I want to build a house for you. I want to, I want to, I'm living in this beautiful palace, and I want to build a house for you. And guess what God says to him? He says, you know, you are not going to build a house for me. David, I'm going to build a house for you. And he begins to tell David about what's going to happen and how he's going to be involved in the line of extending again this deliverer that was, that's all throughout the Torah. 
and you're going to be the one through whom it comes. Okay, so you just start seeing the line. So look at this. This is Second uh, Samuel chapter seven. I'm going to read. Uh, starting in verse halfway through 11. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your own body. Again, offspring. What happened in Genesis 3.15? What's he promising? A future offspring that's going to be a skull crusher. You know, like crush the skull of the serpent. Right? He says, I'm going to raise up an offspring after you shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. His kingdom. He is going to be a king. Right? I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be... Uh, to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay? So God God shows up to David and says this stuff to him. And then this is what David says. Okay? David's processing all of it. Um, and he it, it says a few verses later, he says, you have... He's talking to God. He says, he's like, who am I that you have done this to, to, to my house, to my, uh, to, to my family? He says, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while in the future to come. Okay, so this this idea is that uh, David's realizing that this isn't just his son, that there's something more coming that's greater than David's son. There's something that's out there that God is sending uh, this offspring and it's future stuff. Again, David picks up on the same language as what's in the Torah about these final days or these last days of his future, these, these future days, okay? So, jumping back into, um, jumping back into uh, Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 110, you know, this is where we start, so I'm going to start over. A Psalm of David, okay? So David, again, He's in the Word. God speaks to him and he says, uh, The Lord Yahweh says to my master, Adadai, my, my master. So he's talking about this anointed one that is the goal and the whole, the whole point of the Torah and is also the whole point of God's covenant with him, this future offspring. He says, The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Like, God is elevating this Messiah, this anointed one, to the highest place that could possibly be lifted. And it is to his right hand to establish his kingdom. Okay? So he says, um, you know, which... Which is uh, just amazing because you, you, you have to start asking the question, this deliverer has to be more than just the son of David. Okay? It has to be more. And Jesus fleshes this out. Matthew 22. I think I've got that up there. Uh, Matthew, Matthew 22, 41. Jesus is getting in a discussion with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are trying to corner him and pin him down. So Jesus throws something back in their face. And he says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Because they were questioning him. Uh, next, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, this is a this is an easy answer because you know every single person is going to say son of David. Okay, this is super easy. They said to him, the son of David. Next, he said to them, "How is it then that David 
in in the Spirit, calls Him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Set up my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, so he's cornering these guys, saying, "Like, listen, you say it's just the son of, that that the Messiah is the son of David, just the son of David. Well, why in the world is David calling him Lord and Master?" And then you see, like, this is the next verse. I just um, go to uh, uh, go to the next verse here. I love this. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions, right? Because he just flipped the whole script on them and he was showing them, guess what? I am not just the son of David. I am also the son of God. I mean, this is a such a clear, direct um, you know, call to his divinity. I thought that, I think this is, you know, David would not have addressed a merely human descendant as Lord or Master. He would not have called them Adonai. Um, and this was a quote from uh, John MacArthur. He said, uh, Jesus is pointing out, I love how he says this, Jesus is pointing out that the son of David does not begin to sum up all that is true about the Messiah, who is also the son of God. The inescapable implication is that Jesus is declaring his deity. He is the king and he's also God. And there is no way that, uh, that he would be able to do the things that, he, that he's doing without being simultaneously God and man. And, and what's, uh, what's just amazing on this is, uh, you know, David, you think, if you think about this, David was the mightiest warrior in the Bible, you know, I mean, maybe we could say Samson, you know, close second, I think. I mean, maybe he was a little, little, you know, stronger. But you think about David, he is like the, he's like the greatest, you know. And, you know, David was the mightiest warrior king. But we see here that the Messiah is greater than David. And David knows it. And David's pointing all of us to the future when that greater one will arrive. Okay, this whole thing, I'm telling you, when Jesus comes on the scene, it is like the world is pregnant with anticipation because just like ready to pop, you know, like because, I mean, there's so much stuff built up in the Torah. Sometimes we miss it. We miss it because we, 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 we kind of miss some of the backstory, right? So uh, look at this, Psalm 110, uh, I'll say this, Psalm 110 greatly resonated with the authors of the New Testament. They really loved this passage. They loved this psalm. So what you see, um, just, just to name a handful of them, um, in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 34, Peter is in his very first sermon, and he quotes Psalm 110, and he says, he talks about the Messiah, and he says that he's greater than David. He's showing that this Messiah is, is God's great exalted one. Hebrews uh, 1.13 uh, the author of Hebrews, the whole argumentation of the whole book of Hebrews is predicated on this idea that, that he is greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the law, he's greater than everything because God exalted him to the right hand and there was no greater place for God to exalt him. And this is the whole argumentation of literally the entire book of Hebrews is predicated on one verse from this psalm. 
Like, how cool is that, right? I mean, that kind of shows you something about inspiration, too. Like, it matters. One verse matters. One word matters. A tense matters. You know, like, this is... Uh, so, uh, third one, uh, just to point out, uh, he's exalted to God's side. And the apostles quote this when they're arrested and they're brought before the people who are charging them. Uh, you know, they're brought before them. Um, the uh, the religious leaders uh, ready to get hurt and killed and you know whatever else was going to happen. This was the song that they quoted. You gotta love that, right? I mean, like how how you, you start seeing it everywhere. Um, so this is a very very important verse, and this is a very very important psalm. And look, he says, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." So. I will say this, you know, have you ever been scared by a chair? You know, <laughs> like the answer is no, you know, because chairs are not for, you know, you know, you know, you don't have to fight with it. Maybe the folding chairs, but like, you know, you usually don't have a fight with a chair. You relax and you sit on them, right? Like, I just love the imagery. You know, this is not like, imagine somebody came in here and was threatening your life right now. That, that feeling of flight or fight, you know, this is not what's going on here. This is, this is the mighty king, not fearful of his enemies, but relaxed and reclined. He's relaxed and reclined in the face of death, in the face of evil, Satan, no match, right? Because this is the kind of king that we serve. This is our king. This is our Messiah, okay? So let's keep going. Um, let's, uh, let's try to run down through some of these verses here. Check it out. Verse 2 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. I just love that. Like mighty. Like this is, we are not dealing with a God who is weak, but who is powerful. Not, yes. So his mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Look at this verse 3. And verse 3, by the way, should make you excited. Okay. Um, And let me tell you why. Let's read this. Your people, because uh, who, who is his people? That's us. We got into the book. We got into Psalm 110. How did it happen? Right? Like, I don't know, because this whole psalm could have been like, God destroys, he crushes faces, you know, but, but then all of a sudden, guess what? We get thrown in with him. This is so cool, right? Look what it says. It says, your people, and you could just like, you know, that's us. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Okay, let me unpack that just a little bit. Your people, that's us, will offer themselves freely. That's their volunteering for Messiah's army. We're volunteers in what Messiah is doing. Like, freely. Without compulsion. Why? Because the gospel changes us and then we just want to, right? I mean, this is, this is what happens when, when people are changed by the gospel, when, when people are changed by Messiah, is that they just offer themselves freely to, uh, it says, on the day of your power, or literally, uh, on the day you lead your forces. And he wants, what Jesus is so mind-blowing about this is that... You know, it's not simply that God confronts the enemies all by himself. It's that we are part of the story and we're part of the fight. 
And that's just, you know, like, like how crazy is that, that this powerful God chooses to work in the frailty of our humanity, right? And God has called us to fight. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? Like we're not, like God has called us to be a part of this struggle and a part of this war with him as the leader and commander of the army. And we are volunteering and giving our lives freely to that. Right? How, uh, you know, I, I was watching, uh, uh, I always love watching like war movies, you know, those kinds of things. There was this, uh, I recently watched through uh, Band of Brothers, you know, which, uh, you know, it's just a miniseries documentary where they're following uh, the 82nd Airborne and, uh, you know, Easy Company and just kind of all the way through World War II. And what the interesting thing was that just really stood out to me is there were, uh, there were quite a few places where they were highlighting how many of those young men were actually not of fighting age, but who lied to get in there because they cared about the cause so much that they were willing to give their lives and they were willing to do whatever they could. Now, they weren't like, you know, being forced. Man, they were volunteering and they were doing whatever they could to be a part of the action. You know, and I just think like, man, you know, in one sense, in political commentary, you're like, things have changed. You know, like, I mean, it's like, you know, like, it's, uh, it's a little... A little crazy, right? But here's the thing is like, this is what, this is the picture of like Messiah's army. And we get to be the ones who volunteer freely saying, say, I love, love the words of, you know, Samuel, like here am I, Lord, send, that wasn't Samuel, it's Isaiah, right? My bad. <laughs> I only do the announcements, right? Okay. So, um, you know, here am I, Lord, send me. You know, like that's like this, that's like the heart cry. That's Isaiah, you know. Uh, anyway, let's keep going. Let me just keep rolling here. So look at this. He says, uh, "Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments." And and then he says, "From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours." And it just gives this picture of this fresh young warriors that are displayed in holiness. And guess what? It's not. You think of David. Come on, the one who, who, who murdered, who like took things that weren't his, who violated, I mean, like, listen, man, it's not holiness because we're awesome people and this is what the law shows us. It's not holiness because of what we do. It's holiness because of what has been done for us. Okay? And that is what, that's how we end up being a part of this movement of what God's doing. Okay, so keep rolling. I don't know. If, I, I don't even know if I can get through all this stuff because there's literally so much here. Verse four, he just seems like he switches switches gears real quick. He says, "The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." Okay. Now I know that that's probably got to be like a wait. I was with you, <laughs> and then I'm not with you. <laughs> you know, like. Like, I'm following, and now I don't even know who Melchizedek is, right? Okay, so some of you do. Uh, Melchizedek, he is, at first glance, this seems completely and incredibly out of, out of place. Why do I say this? Um, well, the answer is in the Torah itself, is that uh, one very clear fact is that a priest could not be a king, and a king could not be a priest, Okay. Now, do you remember? Uh, do you remember? Like we back up with the story of David. Who was the dude before him? That you know, what's his name? 
Nahum, Saul, that's right. Saul was the first king of Israel. And, I mean, this is... David came to power within Saul's lifetime and was part of everything going on with the story of Saul. Saul was one of those guys who came on strong and then uh, he violated God's, uh, God's law and God removed him from power. Okay, now let's guess what was the reason why he removed Saul. Okay, I don't know if you remember the story, but... Um, with uh, with Israel's first king Saul, this was the exact reason that God rejected him. Um, the Philistines were coming; he was fighting. Uh, you know, there was a big battle going on, and basically, what happened was, you know, a lot of the people started getting scared, kind of running off. And Saul was like, "I got an army. Uh, I got an army. We're warrior. We're gonna. We need to take this. I need everybody to rally and to gather round. Okay." And he was waiting for Samuel to offer the priestly sacrifice sacrifices before they went into battle okay because that's what priests do kings don't do that okay and what did Saul decide to do he decided to usurp his role as king and become a priest and offer sacrifices in which case God appeared to him and ripped the kingdom right out of his hands and said, no, 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 you will not do that. And you know, for the longest time, I, I was like, why was that such a big deal? Until you start seeing how much of this is actually a picture of what the Messiah is supposed to be and how he was misrepresenting what God was doing. Okay, and here's the deal. If you look at uh, uh, if you look at First uh, Samuel thirteen fourteen, at the very end, he says Samuel says to him, he says, "Your kingdom will not continue; it will end. It's over." And look at here. What makes this psalm so wacky is because um, what is it? What does it say? It says the very opposite here. He says, "The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You're a priest forever." In the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So, like, you have, like, it's not only not ending when he's a priest and a king, um, but it's actually going on forever. And the question is, how is David envisioning a Messiah who is a king and a priest? Well, we turn to this guy, Melchizedek, who literally only shows up one time in the Torah. He shows up one time. He's got three verses. <laughs> Three verses. And that's what's crazy is you start digging into Melchizedek. See, what happens when you start studying the Torah, and Paul kind of points this out, is that the timing of the, of the events matter. Okay? So in the Levitical priesthood, no priest and king combination. But guess where Melchizedek was? He was with Abraham. And guess what about Abraham? Abraham was before the law. Okay, And Paul makes a very strong point later on of saying like the laws that came after this do not nullify the faith that was going on in the place of Abraham before the law even came. Okay, In, uh, in Hebrews, I'll just, man, Hebrews fleshes this one out. You know, so I'll just, I'll just read, try to read through a couple quick things here in Hebrews chapter 7. Look at this. Uh, so uh, Hebrews 7, 
I'll start in verse 20 uh, of chapter 6. You can just listen. It says, When Jesus has gone, where Jesus has gone is a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, Psalm 110, we're quoting into this. Uh, it says, For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. So Abraham goes out, uh, fights these kings, comes back, and Melchizedek's there. And what's really interesting is his name means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he is king of over a place called Salem, okay? Or the, from the word like Shalom, okay? Which is also in that area, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, okay? So more likely than not, this is actually the king of Jerusalem that's there, right? And this is the king of righteousness. And what happens is Abraham uh, offers, uh, he offers um, basically a tenth uh, which was what ended up, you know, we see those were some of the uh, offerings of the Le- Levitical priests. And I'll keep going here. It says, uh, it says, into Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. And then he's also king of uh, Salem, that is the king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues to be a priest forever. Because here's the odd thing. In the Torah, literally everybody has a genealogy. Melchizedek shows up, no genealogy. No like introduction, no conclusion. He's just there. You know? So he's saying how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. Okay? So it says uh, it's beyond, if I skip down here in verse 7, it says it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, okay? So what's going on is he's saying, in effect, that Melchizedek is, in the priestly role of Melchizedek, is actually even superior to Abraham. Man, this just keeps getting, like, it's like the superlatives. He keeps, like, higher, 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 right? He's, he's even better than Abraham. He's better than David. I mean, you can't get it. Those are like the, those are the, those are the Old Testament rock stars, you know? You can't get better than Abraham and David. Listen to this. He says, uh, verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for, uh, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after Aaron? And then he goes on to say, um, uh, he says from... um, that basically the one gets set aside and he said, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Like, listen, uh, there's almost too much stuff to unpack here. But the reality is that, um, that what we see, it, like sort of prefigured in this guy Melchizedek is a priesthood that will never end, that was actually greater than the Levitical priesthood. You know, and this is this is where um, you know if you start looking at um, if you start looking uh, down through here at uh, at this combination, what you have is you have this mighty, mighty warrior king. But it's not just the mighty warrior king; it's the mighty warrior king who also, and I'll catch this, intercedes on your behalf. 
He is not just the one with all of the power being raised to the right hand of God. He is also the one who sticks up for you. Like this king, this king is unbelievable. I mean, the, the reason why, you know, we, we look at him, um, his, you know, and man, if you start, if you start going back into the Torah, you start realizing, you know, and, and, and Paul picks up on, on this and he says, um, he talks about Jesus as being the new Adam, the new priest, the new king. I'm telling you what, this whole thing comes full circle. And now I want you to, um, let's just keep going because I know we gotta, we got we to gotta round out this psalm and bring it home here. Psalm 110, uh, 110 and we're going to just keep reading in verse 5. He says, The Lord is at your right hand. Okay, now what just happened there? I don't, you know, it's like, who, how, what was the, the switch? Because at first it was, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And he's still having this conversation with the Messiah. So now the Lord has joined the Lord. Okay, it's, it's the full... So what we have is God and the Messiah are now acting as one and they are... And now we start seeing the rest of these, uh, these, ver- these verses because now we have God and His Messiah joining to do the following. And look at this. The Lord is at your right hand. So you being the Messiah, the Lord... Yahweh is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. See, and this is what's interesting here is he's, he, he only touches on the priesthood for a second and then he jumps right back into the kingship of Jesus and how he will, uh, and how he will rule and reign. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Listen, and here's what I want you to notice. Look at these he wills, okay? There's, there's a couple of words that just keep getting repeated. He will, he will, he will, he will. Look, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Okay, this is, this is not the kindest, gentlest thing here, right? Corpses. He will shatter chiefs or heads, literally heads. He will shatter heads. He is, the, he is the, the skull crusher still. I love that. I feel like that needs to be one of the names of God. You know, the skull crusher. All right. <clears throat> he will shatter chiefs over the, over the wide earth. And then you can see it's almost like it's a personified, like it's a, it's a person here. Like the Messiah is a person. Like look what it, it says. He will drink from the brook by the way. So he will bend down. It's almost like after this giant battle, he will refresh himself by taking a drink and he will lift up his head. So what you have is you've got this grand picture of this warrior king who God has elevated to the very top, who is greater than everything and who is not just a son of David, but is the son of God. And this one is going to execute judgment on the nations, but he's not just a warrior king. He's also a priest making intercession for us. I mean, this is, this is so... And, and all of this does raise a question because you see how mighty... Um, you know, I, I, um, this is, this is the, the last one. I'm going to read this one from, from uh, uh, just from Revelation. 
and uh, Revelation chapter 19, because because this is this this. This comes through with this. Look at this. Uh, chapter 19, verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head there are many diadems, there are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the almighty and my question is who are his enemies I want you to hear this, because this right here is one of the most important questions you can ask when you are reading this psalm. Because this psalm sets up a mighty warrior king that will literally be crushing heads and skulls and leaving a trail of blood behind him. And this is typically not something that we want to think about God, right? What is, who are the enemies of God? Yes, we can say... Sin is an enemy. Hell is an enemy. The devil is an enemy. But guess what? In this passage, what we also see is the nations. There's a potential that you are his enemy. I want that to sink in. There's a very real possibility that you are his enemy today. And that's a scary place. Let me tell you this. There's a, like, I just want to close with this, this one idea. And I hope that this, I hope this resonates with you. And I hope that if you do not know Jesus and you have never placed your trust in him and you have never surrendered to him so that he is your priest, guess what? You are only going to meet him as your conqueror. And my prayer is that you will fall on your knees and surrender to him today. That you will do that. Like, listen, this, uh, this, this vision of God, this vision of the king, uh, it's a two-sided coin. It's a two-sided coin. And the reason is because you are going to meet this king one day. You all, everyone in this room is going to meet this king someday. And you are going to meet him one of two ways. There's only two ways that you're going to meet him. One... You're going to meet him as a mighty warrior who fights with you. Or you will meet him as a warrior who fights for you. That's the only two ways that you are going to meet this king. He's either going to be your... He's either going to be your conqueror... Or he's going to be your priest. You think about that like the one with all the power in the world to destroy and to, to, to do whatever he wants. And listen, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and who he is, our priest, let me tell you, like what can be, what can be against you? If you have the mighty warrior of heaven on your side, then you need to live life with the most utter confidence, not in your own humanity and frailty, but in his mighty sovereign power.
Like that's, that's what we get to do as his children because he is the one with all the strength. But guess what? He doesn't just have the strength. He's the one sticking up for you. He's the one that is constantly uh, interceding for you. In fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. He, he, he quotes this chapter and he says that because Jesus is seated at the right hand, that he, that's what grounds his intercession for you and I. He's our priest. He's our king. And I'm telling you today, you will either either be slaughtered by this king or you will be defended by the priest who was slaughtered for you. And my prayer today, listen, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you've come in here with. I don't know if you have ever bent your knee to King Jesus. But I am begging you and I am pleading with you, if you have never done that, that today is the day. Because someday you're going to see Him. And I'm telling you, I'm I'm so thankful uh, for Him and for what He's done. Um, But we will all give an account. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much that you have been weaving this epic story from the opening, literally words of Genesis about this glorious deliverer that is that is that has come to deal with death and sin and hell and destruction and God you have your 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 deliverer is reversing all that was lost through the failure priest king Adam and God you are installing your king on Zion and God we just bow before you today those of us who we are your children we are we are the the ones that are freely giving ourselves to you we freely give you every single area of our life God I just pray that there would be no area that would be in our life that would not come under your rule and that would not come under your reign and God I pray that you would just cause even in this moment for us to be able to caught to to think of these things that are not submitted to you and to freely give them to you this morning. God, I just pray that all of that would be given to you because you are our king. And Lord, I pray for anybody that's in here that has never bowed the knee to King Jesus that Lord, today would be the day. God, we love you. We are so thankful that you have exalted your king and that you are the one that... uh, Uh, You stick up for us. And God, we love you. We thank you for everything. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you guys want to stand, we're going to sing, Yet Not I, but through Christ in me. Gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. 
Jesus.